Hello, you. Hello, you. Now, they're going to tell us it's a month since we did this last time. I think they're lying. Yeah. You think? Do you think it's more like in the region of, say, five minutes? <laughs> minutes? <laughs> it feels like a month to me. I've had a really, really busy month. Last time we spoke, I'd just come back from two weeks away. And I knew I was facing a busy period with them. Um, finishing up a big project with a client and um that launched on monday so hey. i'm like oh, yeah round, round of applause for project launch thank you thank you and so what's there so something i need to say to the listeners in, in uh, i living up to my promises and challenges to myself i have registered for the spoken word event in lewis uh, the open Ooh. mic that i told i said that i would register for Another round of applause, I think. So this Sunday, I will be performing one of my poems in Lewis. Ooh. Now, that is very exciting. How do you feel about it? Scared and excited. Maybe that's the same emotion <laughs> looked at from a different place. Uh, it could be. There probably, probably is some research onto that. But yeah, scared, fear. I suppose it's probably doing something to your internal... I was about to say your adrenal glands, but I don't know if that's the right one. Your internals. Something in there, yes. Something so I'm, in there. I'm looking forward to, to just having, say, I'm looking forward to just having the spotlight on me and um, my work, my words for, for a brief time, um, because that's that's a that's a rare thing. I find it hard to put myself up for stuff like this. So I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Oh, cool. That's very, very exciting. Right. And how, how's the month been in, in poetry? Practice land. Poetry. Oh, that's a good Because it sounded like things were starting to... Things were happening yes. when we last spoke. Yes, they are. So actually, there's, there's two things. So one thing I won't mention is that I am working on an event. I haven't even told you about this yet. I am <gasps> oh, working on an exclusive. event. Exclusive. Hopefully to happen later this month online. Um, around kind of reading and discussion of poetry using the thinking environment as a kind of as a framework as a, and a container or a, a, a bit of a discipline to support everyone having a space space to think for themselves about about whatever poetry we choose to talk about oh. and it, so it's an experiment it's a pilot it will be a, i will advertise it to you know kind of friends and people i know and see who wants to rock up um, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be, so Ronya Delaney and I will be hosting it just as a, just a say, as a pilot. But I'm also talking to um, Roshni B. Harry about, about this kind of idea as well. So I'm going to have a conversation with, hopefully have another conversation with Roshni soon. But both, both Roshni and I have been just mad busy. So we haven't, we haven't got any further <laughs> on what, what we might do with it. So yes. Blimey. Oh, you heard it here first. Well, I heard it here first. Yes, that is the very first mention of it um, beyond my conversations with Ronnie. So it's very exciting. And the, oh. and the second thing... Oh, is yes, oh, that, probably there's more. There's, there's more. Well, the second thing is, is the one you know about. So in terms of the month in poetry, I have been thinking a lot about form. Okay. And I have been reading a fantastic book um, called... Hang on a minute. I've, the Making of a Poem. Uh, uh, it's a Norton okay. anthology book, and it is it's in parts, and each part deals with a different form, gives some historical context, gives some explanation, gives some examples of poetry, kind of does a close reading of one. Um, and so I've worked my way through Villanelle, um, Sistina, Pantum, um, Sonnet, Ballad, maybe a couple of others. Um, so yes, and I'm working my way through some of the less kind of less defined forms now. But interesting. And what I the I want to share a poem. Oh. I want to read a poem with you and with the listeners because this just it, this book has just kind of opened or turned on so many lights for me. I'm going to mix up my metaphors. Turn on so many <laughs> lights in, in the arena of poetry and form and why form works and what it does i've always been interested in the music of um words and, and what we say and what we write um and i encountered a word for it that i love prosody 
prosody, um, oh. which is kind of which is that it's the music of it, the music of, nice. of the words of language. And I encountered that when I was studying for my MA, and it's just that word is just staying in my head. Um, so this is kind of about that for me. Um, so I think what I'll do is um, the poem is called "The Great Depression" by Donald Donald Justice. For anyone who already knows it, it's a pantoum, which is a form that has it makes a very specific use of repetition, and there's just something. I don't know, things really slotted into place for me when I read the poem and read the close reading of it in the book. So, how does that strike you, Neil? Would that, would that be Amazing. A, that'd be a good thing? I'm, all, I'm always up for poetry, you know that, Louise. Yes, indeed. So, The Great Depression by Donald Justice. Our lives avoided tragedy simply by going on and on, without end and with little apparent meaning. Oh, there were storms and small catastrophes. Simply by going on and on we managed. No need for the heroic. Oh, there were storms and small catastrophes. I don't remember all the particulars. We managed. No need for the heroic. There were the usual celebrations. The usual sorrows. I don't remember all the particulars. Across the fence, the neighbours were our chorus. There were the usual celebrations, the usual sorrows. Thank God no one said anything in verse. The neighbours were our only chorus, and if we suffered, we kept quiet about it. At no time did anyone say anything in verse. It was the ordinary pities and fears consumed us, and if we suffered, we kept quiet about it. No audience would ever know our story. It was the ordinary pities and fears consumed us. We gathered on porches, the moon rose, we were poor. What audience would ever know our story? Beyond our windows shone the actual world. We gathered on porches, the moon rose, we were poor, and time went by drawn by slow horses. Somewhere beyond our windows shone the world. The Great Depression had entered our souls like fog. And time went by drawn by slow horses. We did not ourselves know what the end was. The Great Depression had entered our souls like fog. We had our flaws, perhaps a few private virtues, but we did not ourselves know what the end was. People like us simply go on. We have our flaws, perhaps a few private virtues, but it is by blind chance only that we escape tragedy. And there is no plot in that. It is devoid of poetry. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Lordy, where to start? Reminds me of one of your poems. Oh my goodness. Well, that feels like a massive compliment. And now I'm trying, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm rubbish with titles and it's been a very, very long week. But there was a poem of yours you shared with me about flutter goldfinches. Oh, yes. Yes. Nice. And that for me, there's, there's something listening to that and pieces in the in the repetition in the flow and perhaps in the, in the reading as well it might be if someone else read it i would i would have a different different response but something very much about creating that entire world and actually being brought into that world through the language and having the language so much being created and, and there are shapes for me in that as well which is someone who who faffs about with words for a living um that's a technical technical, <laughs> te- technical, term, technical, technical term. um See if my boss is listening. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting, a really powerful piece as well. I mean, the bits are sort of are scrolling a, a little bit, and the piece about storms and small catastrophes, and we managed that really lands for me. Mm. And again, thinking work, thinking of a work context particularly, mm. that really lands quite powerfully. What was it that drew you to it? Apart from obviously, it's, it's beauty and it's lyricism and all those amazing things. It brings tears to my eyes. I hmm. wasn't expecting that this evening because I've read it so many times and I keep forgetting that it literally brings tears to my eyes every time I read it. There's something about the weight of it that really hmm. lands with me, and not in a suffocating way, not, you know, not, not kind of, it's not a panicky kind of feeling of weight, but it's a real gravity. Yeah. It really there goes is. in. And there is... I think something that the form does is 
the repetition, so it is the second and the fourth line of each verse become the first and the third line of the next. So there is, there's not, you don't make much oh, progress yes. in a way. You don't so get very far because you're always kind of going back half a verse, if you like. Okay. But what that does is it kind of creates this effect of circling mm. around the central theme and around, in fact, around the grief and the loss. And it's it, it's really interesting, this poem, because it's a grief and a loss that is kind of, is told as a very ordinary grief and a loss. You know, it's it's not it's not a big catastrophe. It's about small catastrophes. It's yeah. not about being unable to carry on. It's about going on anyway. And it's not about the big dramas of our lives, except that it is about the big dramas of our lives because these are the big dramas of yeah. our lives. But but they're the kind of they're the untold stories. And so the the circularity of it and the kind of I think really highlights that tension between kind of the you know the experience of grief and loss and tragedy um that is somehow small and invisible interesting i mean it is i mean it reminds you it made me think of john fante's work as far as an american author but writing about the the depression um mm. great, the great depression and it also but it also for me actually brought to mind the opening of under milk wood by Dylan Thomas, yeah. just in the in the way that it rolled and it roiled and it gave you such a yeah such a, a quite a visceral picture, actually in a visceral shape picture as well. And how yeah, like you say, the the words and the form really work. Mm. I love what you said about shape, and it's reminded me of is it, you shared an article with me about kind of the shape literally shape of words kind of if they're jagged and pointy oh, or, you know, yes. and there was a there was a surprising amount of repeatability and consistency between different people kind of describing the shape or rating the shape of words wasn't there and it mm-hmm. so when you talk about That's shape right. i think the shape is kind of there perhaps there is a micro shape but the the shape i'm really tuning into is kind of bigger than on the individual word level yeah absolutely oh, amazing thank you so much for sharing i'm gonna come back to i'm gonna come back to that one i think that's one of those pieces that yeah, I mean, I've I've got it. I've got it on screen just now. I, I wasn't reading it. I, I was listening to you, and uh, but I had it in the in the background. I've just put it up, and it, I just we gathered on porches. The moon rose. We were poor. There's something about that line that's just sticking, sticking to me. I think it's that gathering on porches and the humanity and the and the piece. It just it creates such a, a vivid picture for me. Again, as someone who suddenly faffs about with words, um, yeah. It really, really works. It does create a vivid picture, doesn't it? I think there's something else in there which is coming out comes out a lot in my workshops with um with Archie, the poetry jam that I, I do on a Thursday night. And oh yeah. He talks about he's often talking about specificity in poetry. So there's there's a bit of an art to being specific but not being over prescriptive. Ah. The specificity okay. is really important. And I think that thing about the gathering on the porches, the moon rose, we were poor, it's, it's quite specific, but it's not prescriptive. You can imagine mm. the people gathering on the porches, however makes sense to you. You can imagine the colours of the night um, and the colours of the moonrise or the moon shining, yeah. however you like. So there's, there's a lot of power in those words. Absolutely. And it is... I mean, it... Yeah, and no, it's our, our sort of pre-chat and, and pre-notes talking about it being a, a living, breathing thing and creating that reality and existence mm-hmm. around it. Which definitely chimes in us having a, a discussion recently about creating our universes through words and language. Yes. It's, it's something I've got quite interested in. I sort of to my other half and mentioned about narrative analysis. I was oh, that sounds exciting. Um, but how how the language how the language you, we use creates the universe and I'm not going to go. Uh, uh, it's not really. I don't think it's really existentialism. You're the philosopher in the room. You can tell me. But it's that. It's that piece around how we. I'm. I'm really interested. I'm going to be really interested in, in that piece around how we inhabit, how we describe the world, and the the, the direct effects it has then on us and our experience of the world. And actually, if we describe the world in a certain way, do we then perceive the world in a certain way, and does that change subjective reality? 
because mm. there is no objective reality of yeah well i'm i'm with you on the no objective reality that's um yeah that's one of the things that i latched onto in my philosophy studies is well well yeah but then there's if you say there's no objective reality that's problematic but i'm not going to get into that right now <laughs> there's this there's tensions um however what you have reminded me of is i think this is a really nice segue into the podcast oh. that you shared with me all in the mind podcast because you're talking about um oh, you're yes. talking about you know shaping the world that we live in through word maybe deed um and that was essentially the kind of the central point of that podcast wasn't it that in marketing the your one's experience of the brand um or the you know the product or you know is shaped by our perception of the brand that's and right so that's that's an important consideration in marketing that's right that's the neuromarketing marketing podcast that's the one which was brilliant i listened to it this morning when uh, when i woke up at like five and was like now <laughs> and it, was, it was just right actually because i was i was awake enough to think but i didn't actually want to move fair, well, fair enough we're, we're better to listen to a podcast quite frankly but yeah no it was it was good I mean, all in the mind is, is one of my favorite go-to listens anyway um but that one i thought was it was particularly good mostly because it was getting into the kind of areas of behavior change mm-hmm. using using language using image to dare i say nudge things Ooh, uh, Push things, push things along, but there, there is a, a delicious bit. I won't, I won't give anything away because it, it, and it does say it in its own show notes. Um, what separates duck pate from one made of dog food? And there's, now and I there's read research. That in the show notes before I listened to it, and I was like, what? <laughs> there's, oh yes, and there's, there's research about this, and there's research about the shape of wine glasses and all these kind of things. But it's that sense. I won't say objective reality again, but. I'll, I just did. Um, but it's that sense of subjective reality and, and subjective experience coming on to something. And actually how how it can be manipulated for good or ill. Obviously for for good is a for good is a great thing. Um but then for, you can also manipulate it for ill. And it chimes into all the stuff I'm interested in around behaviour change and social marketing and when nudges tip over into unfair manipulation and coercion. Mm. that's something that's always interesting I can't remember off the top of my head if that kind of comes into there but it was interesting the other thing that came out from that and that's why it's, it's all ticking back into my head now um, hey. hey it's all coming um, there's that something I've been thinking about a lot recently strangely enough and I don't really know why it might be this podcast's fault it might be something else but it's mental simulations I think I've been getting something Again, I want to say slightly existential has been going on. I don't know what I don't know what. I think I've been reading, been reading all sorts of things. But I was really thinking about mental simulations and again how we create the world and how we create our expectations of being in the world and how I expect so let's say I expect um a conversation to go. And I expect, I don't know, let's say it's it's a work environment and let's say it's a difficult conversation and let's say it's with um a hierarchical superior. Mm. in there and i'm going into that i'm going into the conversation and my mental simulation is i'm bringing x my men, in my mental simulation you will respond y now if well literally y maybe let's say z that's easier let's say you will respond with z so my mental simulation is that and if everything works in conjunction with my mental simulation everything's kind of okay i know where i am i know how to conduct the conversation if you respond with b my simulation is broken and I then started again to think about the Matrix, and oh, maybe that was it. Maybe it's because the new Matrix film trailer was trailer was out. Just who knows? Who who can say? But it was there was something there about things being a simulation, not quite brain in a jar, um, but how that simulation can be broken and bent, and actually what happens then. So if the expected patterns of behaviour, if the expect, expected patterns of response change, mm-hmm. it breaks my simulation. My simulation can therefore no longer work, and what footing do I have to to move on from there? So yeah, I don't know whether that was from that podcast, but for some reason, for about three days, that really not troubled me, but really sat on my mind yeah. as we last recorded. Just the idea of mental mental simulations and yeah, creating how that reality is created and held by individuals, and mm. whether that reality is the same whether my simulation, the same as your simulation, the same as someone else's simulation. Yeah, I don't know. I've just 
weighed on my mind for about three or four days, and then something else came along and weighed in. <laughs> I, I see, I, and I think that um, I, I, I get why that would weigh on your mind. Um, I really get that because I think there's so much actually that comes out of that for me. So we we live in a society and we're part of a culture where planning ahead, thinking ahead, preparing, readying yourself, especially intellectually in the kind of thought work and creative work that, that you and I do, Neil. Mm. That's a it's a very prized uh, it's a very prized um, ability, and it, and in fact, and it's reminded me of. Some, so I recently read, reread. I'd already read it once. I reread the Last Tudor by Philip Gregory, which is um, okay. it's a fictionalized account of the the kind of the lives of Jane Grey and her two sisters, Catherine Grey and Mary Grey, and they're kind of they're, they're the last of the Tudor line. Um, and Jane Grey, who is very young and she comes to the throne by the machinations and manipulations of the families and the great houses around her. She doesn't last very long. She gets put in the tower and eventually she dies. Well, quite quickly she dies, actually. Um, and in, in the fictionalised account, there's a thing that's just so relatable. It's so relatable. She's a complete scholar. She's an absolute scholar. She's incredibly devout. Um, she's convinced that, you know, God will look after her. Uh, that's not relatable, um, but the, but but the fact that she is trained in scholarly thought, argument, and in debating, and she has this thing where she she kind of think is thinking to herself. So you, you're as the reader, you're a lot in Jane's head. She's thinking okay. to herself. You say, "Well, no, I was I was ready for the debate with so and so, whoever it was. I was ready with the debate, and if if X had just approached it in the way I expected, I would have had my argument already. But as it turned out. X didn't go down that line at all and there was nothing else I could say and I thought okay. I've been there I've imagined yep. how a conversation's going to go and I've tried to plan it out because it feels important that I kind of get you know get my point across and get my side across in an orderly way and the other person has gone down a completely different route they're thinking and I've not been able to adjust or to keep up oh, and therefore I've not been able to say anything Okay, interesting. So just just so familiar, um, mm. and it the, and where that then takes me is that it's that being too heavily in my own simulations stops me from being present. It stops me from responding to what's happening, what somebody else brings in the moment. It stops me from checking in with my own, with my feelings, with how I'm responding, how I'm reacting, and it kind of. It's almost like the simulation can, if the simulation is good, then it can be very helpful, I guess. But if it's not good, it really kind of blocks me out from remaining in the world. I'm kind of stuck in my idea of how things were going to be. I'm kind of excluding myself. Okay. Almost. I was spoken to me think a lot of the sort of dialogue and around kind of mindfulness and being in the moment and being in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I know it's kind of, it's yeah, it's one of those sort of things that. I can't put it on my hated words list because I do I do believe in it as a principle, but it, I think it's it's like dachshunds; it's suddenly everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, what is that about sausage dogs? Huh? They, they really are very popular, and, and know. you know, yeah, they're cute. But mm. Spe speaking of which, which we weren't that as we're here, we might as well. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the whole thing. So dachshunds. This is one thing that that really again weighs on my poor little brain. So. Dogs have a um, a fashion cycle, unfortunately, rather yeah. like clothes, handbags, interior design, and names. Yeah, exactly. So everything has all these things have fashion cycles, and unlike the latest Dulux colour, dogs take a while to brew, so you have to grow them from puppies and such and such That's things. Convenient. I know. Damn. Them. So <laughs> at the moment, it's <laughs> at the moment it's Daxons. A little while ago, it was Boston, uh, Boston Terriers. A little while before that, it was something else. What goes? Shepherd Shepherds, Retrievers, yada 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 yada. What I found really interesting is you never see puppies. There's always like I mean like when I, when we were living in Brighton, there were Daxons everywhere, but they were all about three years old, okay. and it's. And it also makes me think like the, the kids who grew their hair in the 60s. Suddenly you had all these long hairs floating around. There must have been a stage where like a majority of that population had kind of 
silly hair that dusted like the top of their ears and then kind of mm. curled around the bottom. There must have been an interstitial moment, a bit like Dachshund puppies, where <laughs> there's all these puppies, <laughs> yes. and then suddenly they break through into popular consciousness, and they're literally everywhere. Now, I don't know whether it's a, one of those things about if you say, watch out for red cars, suddenly every car on the road is, is red. I don't know whether it's a, a perception bias thing. But it's just fascinated me. You never saw Boston Terrier puppies. Be always, you suddenly saw all these things. And so that maybe always makes me think then about culture cycles. And at some point, like three years ago, then I was talking to someone recently about Daxons, dogs or whatever. And they said, oh, yeah, it's because so-and-so has got one. Let's say Kim Kardashian. I don't know whether it was, but I'll blame her. Kim Kardashian's got a so-and-so, so everyone's got it. I'm like, okay, don't watch whatever the show is. At home with the Kardashians, I think. Did she have it from a puppy, or did she like acquire it post puppydom? Wow. So actually, I, I there must know. have Listeners, been. Do you know where Kim Kardashian got her? Where, uh, where did this come and from? When? And so there must be this cultural cycle of whatever it is, puppies, probably interior design, that actually starts like three years before, mm. or long hair. So I mean, for example, it takes me forever. I can't grow long hair because it basically gets to. A length and it just goes no that's mm. it it goes really quickly up to that point no, that's it but there must be a point at some point in history where all these people decided to do the same thing at the same time whether they're picking up on a weak signal whether there's a strong signal and then suddenly it reaches its kind of zenith a few years afterwards just it's one of those things it, it occasionally weighs on my mind it's slightly mm. fascinating i want to know how to bottle it, it it's because if you could bottle that thing if it's like, I don't know, Dachshunds are the dog of the moment, and it's like, oh, every advert is now going to have a Dachshund in it, that cultural moment is like three years in the making. Um, or two years in the making. have got a live example of this that you mentioned to me in our pre-show chat. So next door, that social media, that local social uh, yes. media site. So I, it came into my consciousness about two years ago when I got a thing through the door, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll sign up for that and give it a go. And it's just kind of rumbled on. I don't actually use it very often. I sometimes go and have a look. I get the emails. Um, I recommended somebody use it for something recently. Um, but it, so it's very much a part of my world now, even though I don't really use it. And I, it seems that lots of people in the local community here use it. Um, to the, you know, and to the point where the local council at some point in the beginning of lockdown posted something on next door, and they they got they got like hundreds and hundreds of comments, some abuse, mm. some trying to defend them. Anyway, it, it was really interesting, and it, it, I really noticed it when you talked about um, next door earlier, and you said that when you were working at, at the council in Worthing, that it was a thing then, which was well before I had any knowledge it was a thing or it existed or anything like that. So I was like, oh, so there was, a, you know, that I became aware of the gestation period, for want of a better phrase, mm. um, or the becoming period, that, you know, <laughs> before I was aware of it, it was a thing and, you know, you'd seen the potential of it, but as you said, you, you guys couldn't get it to, to work. I think it was called, I think back in the day it was called Up My Street. It was it, it, it rebranded at some point, and we we looked at it. And it was it, it was too early stage for us. It was it was a bit. It was that, again that sort of thing of Twitter was nowhere, and suddenly it was everywhere. There was the the early adopter cycle, um, but yeah, no, yeah, no. Next door's interesting. It's it's less bad tempered than Facebook. I, I stomped off Facebook about a year ago. I've never looked back. Um, it's less bad tempered than Facebook, but it's actually got most of the interesting things. It's a bit of community, a bit of sales, a bit of trading. Can I borrow a drill? I don't know. Um, so yeah, interesting. But yeah, so that's that adoption curve. But yeah, the adoption curve for Dachshunds. Yes. Yeah. It's just adoption it just happens. Curve. But it, and it is that it is that cultural moment. It is that thing of when did someone look at a Dachshund, Boston Terrier, and whatever, or enough people look at it and go, "I want a puppy version of that," so that then in two years' time, I can stroll about looking like whoever it was. Yeah, see, and I'm not too late to join the 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 Dachshund Club. I I don't want a Dachshund. I'm not I'm not a huge dog person, um. But you know, but am I too late? Have I missed the boat or missed the sausage dog? (laughs) Well, possibly. A dog for life, not just for Christmas, and not a fashion accessory. Um, Well, quite indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Which, unfortunately, most of poor Dachshunds and. um, Boston's especially. See, they seem to be. They seem to be like they this. They do seem fashion. to be. And I'm like, oh, that's to, just uh, to be fair, I I know I know um someone I've never met in person, I know I know them on Twitter. 
and she has two dachshunds that are rescue dogs and she Aww. absolutely adores them mm. and and you know has gone to quite a lot of trouble to to kind of look after them and show them the kind of kindness that that they need because they had quite a difficult start in life so i am um, mel if you're listening then you're definitely not one of those kind of dachshunds rescue dogs are awesome and there is a there is a spectrum of the Daxon donor, but again, I think similar to to anything those sort of cultural those cultural pieces, whether it's the Daxon, whether it's the hairstyle, whether it's the mode of dress. I mean, dear old hip, where are all the hipsters now? I mean, okay, I've basically not left my house for eighteen months because of that quote pandemic. Um, hashtag pandemic, not quote pandemic. Dear God, the pandemic is real. Hashtag pandemic. Um, but you don't see many of the, the sort of the. The hardcore hipsters you were seeing kind of in the about 2010 2010 to 12 that that boat that the hipster boat has rolled on i think they've gone i think <laughs> they're moving <laughs> well indeed they, they were starting they were starting to get over um homogenous i can't think of the word <laughs> definitely getting a homogenous uh, there was a homogeneity to the the group that um it was quite it was getting difficult to tell one from the other the, be- the beanie hats and the dungarees were exactly the same it was a uniform which is interesting because I know one of the things you mentioned about talking about, and uh, somehow we have God, it's almost like we planned this. We didn't plan that that particular arc of Daxon, hipster Daxons. Um, arc of Daxon. <laughs> the arc of Daxon. There's a podcast title if ever there was one. Um, performative dress standards. Yes, yes. Um, so where did and that came from? I, I was I was scrolling on LinkedIn as, as you Ooh. do, and Jane Harrison, who I um, I did actually meet in person briefly at Meaning Conference, the one awesome. before COVID, that must have been a couple of years ago, but mostly I know her online. And and she shared something about, actually it was about the role of privilege in um, certain, you know, in a certain kind of dress at work. So if a certain kind of dress is expected, and I had not, I had not given this any thought at all, um, dress and kind of, Dress is really dress and clothes are really important to me. Um, it's something that I I enjoy. Um, I enjoy kind of thinking about clothes and dressing. But she um, made the point that you, you know if you need to be able to afford afford a certain type of uniform, outfit, dress to do the work, um, not simply having the right ability and the skills, then you know that becomes potentially a barrier to entry. Um, which you know and 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 so there's you know there's potential for and in fact there there is inequality there so privilege kind of starts to play a role in whether or not you can access that world of work do you have enough money to buy the three-piece suit do you have the right connections to know how and where to get a suit fitted um things like that start to come into it oh interesting because it is definitely there's uh, there's a group element a group think element in there and sort of a a community, there's community, niche community, um, what do you call it, cliquey, there's potentially mm. as well. If you, I mean, yeah, think back to school, um, yeah, my, my school, we had to wear uniforms, so you didn't see it too much, but on the, the few days we were allowed off the chain, a bit like the indie kids, obviously, all that indie kid jeans and t shirt garb, and then the kind of the puffer jacket, bomber, bomber jacket, dance folk, they're off at one end, and then various people mm. in the middle who just didn't really dress up, they just turned up, um. But yeah, you're right. And there's, there is that sort of thing. And, and with the pandemic and people going back to the office or going back to in person, I wonder how that's going to change. Because people have got mm. used to wearing jeans and T-shirt to work all day, where you would have been expected to wear at least formal trousers and a shirt, speaking for, for males, um, yeah. and a, an office office smart. So it's going to be really interesting to see, see how that changes. But I agree with you. There's such a, there's such a performative element in that dress, and whether it's whether it's the hipsters and and their <laughs> crocheted beanie hats, or I mean punks and yeah. um, traditional punks, traditional ska, the, the kind of skinhead and buffer boots folk yeah. who came out who came out of jazz, uh, they're, they're actually ex ex jazzers. Yeah, it's a, a real piece of, of belonging and group membership, and there's so much in there. But it's let's talk about the privilege piece a bit more. That's really interesting as well, and. Is it, it was the piece mostly around of being able to afford it, or was it being able, kind of being able to wear it, and and, how, and what did that, what did it really bring up for for you as someone who, like you say, kind of enjoys enjoys that kind of 
clothes and I wouldn't say dressing up because that sounds bad, but mm. yeah. What what did it bring up for you? It it brought up for me a a place to examine, potentially a blind spot of mine that I've I've you know but looking at some of my privilege. So I've 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 never worked somewhere where you need to be truly suited and booted for work. I've I've never worked somewhere where it, there's been you know a strict dress code. Um, on the other hand, I mean, my my mum went to. My mum has always been very clear about you know if you need to look smart, this is you know she's got her own views on how you do it, and she's impressed this on both me and and my sister. And we've interpreted it in, in you know in our own ways, but um, I think probably I'd probably best sum it up when I say so when when I was when I was working for a, a social media agency and we were kind of visiting visiting clients overseas. And you know their kind of dress code was was you know definitely office smart if not you know and and the higher kind of up the ranks you went the more kind of you would have your suit jacket on all the time and you would be wearing a tie and you know, the more that applied. So um, my colleague said that I um they said that I looked like an accountant, and they meant it as a compliment. I, I wasn't. I mean, well, maybe there was a little bit of kind of. But, but broadly it was meant as a compliment and and it was that my mum and I had a couple of couple of um suits kind of skirt and jacket um that my mum had bought me that we'd gone shopping for together my mum bought me and in there and I just I knew that if it was like a kind of armor for me I knew okay. that I would kind of blend in enough in that dress and I and I quite I, I like that you know I, I, I like that and and as I've got older actually I'm less interested in blending and I'm and I'm more interested in expressing something of, of myself in how I dress so I like I like bright colors now I and mm. I, I don't you know, I don't work anywhere that it ever comes up as attention you know if I want to wear a bright orange jumper like I'm wearing today to work then I certainly will um and that you know, that's fine and and I but I do I kind of enjoy putting colors together in an outfit so I kind of look so it looks all of a piece Okay. which is something I really didn't get when I was younger um I was like kind of mix and match you know colors patterns whatever <laughs> it's kind of interesting um but so what it made me think was well how much privilege is involved in that kind of sense of thinking about you know how to dress for different occasions different situations um what my sense of a, a put together outfit is and looks yeah. like and and you know I, I I'm and I that's an exploration for me to go on how much of that is just kind of unconscious and is something that you know that is a privilege of mine that I did I wasn't even aware of oh interesting interesting I mean you reminded me there's someone I worked with a few year a few years ago who used clothes actually in a very very performative kind mm -hmm. of way um and yeah I mean I suppose I suppose we've all done it. I mean, I've, I've definitely done it. That kind of thing where you're going into a, I'd say, high-powered meeting. Because mm. that really doesn't exist much in local government. But you're going into a meeting with I don't know, the leaders of the council or an MP or somebody you need to do something. And just, the best tie comes out and the best couplings go on. And you, it's almost power dressing. Unlike you, there's there's an armour there. But this person I'm thinking of, I could always tell what type of meeting they were going to or what type of day they were going to have mm. by what they're wearing. And if they're wearing... If they were having a day when they might be dealing with the artsy folk, they wore cords. Ah, oh, okay, yeah. I could always tell the mustard cords came out. I was like, ah, you're going to meet the artsy folk. Mm. It was it was really definite. And that person, I I wonder how much of that was conscious and unconscious. Uh, yeah. At the time, I I I think it was probably conscious performative. Yeah. As my my general read on it, and it. And there was there was also an inauthenticity potentially underneath some of that. I was like, oh, okay, so it's that's a real, it's a manipulation of space. It's a manipulation of the simulation. Actually, to go yes. back to to go back to that, it's you you are fitting into a prescribed piece. But of course, that's really oh, that's really interesting now because you've just made me that discussion that you've brought up just made me think about how we limit ourselves then and what boxes we place ourselves into mm. in order to fit in in order to blend in what potential in ourselves are we limiting so for example yes you're wearing a, a, a rather fabulous orange jumper um is that 
influencing the conversation we're having are you more relaxed if you're in your suit that you you bought with your mum with that that story that heritage behind it would the way we're talking now even though we've been friends for for a very long time um can't even how many years dear god if five years feels like a month then um we're doing really we're doing really well um yeah so forever um how do, how does that change what we're doing how does that change our relationship to the environment relationship to other relationship to self mm-hmm. and how and and yeah interesting power dressing and superman pose that's where that's where it's all going for yeah um, yeah that's bleh. i i think so i think I, yeah so you've moved my thinking on which is just fabulous um and so the example you gave of the mustard cords um I think in the, in the inauthenticity that you talked about, so the potential there is that that someone, um, you know, chooses to fit themselves into a box, into an external reality, chooses to kind of adapt, um, to use transactional analysis language, to adapt themselves to fit in kind of in, in an external mould, perhaps change the external. But what they're not doing and i think this is what happens in this when we're simu- when we're too busy simulating as well actually i think it's what happens then we're kind of trying to adapt to how we think things are going to be what we're not doing is connecting with our, our own core and kind of who we are and where we are what we need our responses to the system that we're in the people the environment all of it when we kind of there's the link is broken then between kind of the outward presentation and the inward kind of sensations you know, needs what makes me tick. Say, so you you kind of there's again not being pre- not well not being vulnerable certainly and not being present in the moment either. Interesting. And so then, is that we're living in a? I suppose we come back to that sort of simulation piece. But is that? I don't know where I was going. I don't know where I was going with that. I was about to say we're living in the future, which, yeah. Um, that's well, I was going. Know, with. Well, I- I know where I know where I think you're going with that. Are we living oh, in good. the future? Where am I going? Well, you asked. <laughs> I, I think you asked a really simple and really effective question. Are we Are we living in the future? Because of course, the future doesn't actually exist. Ah, oh, there is that. So yes, I think there, I think there's a lot of living in the future in the way we live our lives and the way we're trained and taught and you know and what's expected of us as you know as Westerners. So certainly, yes. you know, in the UK. There's a lot of living in the future. And and if you're living in the future, you are denying yourself the kind of pleasure and or even just the connection with the present. You are excluding yeah. yourself from it. Connection in the moment. I suppose that comes up. Yeah, and I think where I was then thinking with the, the dress and the performative aspects was trying to manipulate that simulation for an undefined future or defined future outcome within a semi-defined or undefined, undefined space that is walking into room of artsy people or whatever else you kind of you're exerting the control over the piece that piece you can and that then links to that kind of future state okay i'm gonna have to think about that one there's plenty there <laughs> isn't there <laughs> oh my god it's been a long day it's been a tuesday it's tuesday we're calling this on tuesday evening it's been long it's been a long day it's been a long week and like oh you've just opened my brain to something entirely new and different we got there together well, indeed. Speaking of totally new different, there was one other thing we we did put in our our pre show catch up that I did want to, to mention, and it actually comes it comes back to putting in putting in boxes. So this Ooh. is one of my many media rants. I feel like I should add my own klaxon. Um, the independent. We'll put a link in the show notes. The independent published a piece a little while ago. Um, with government sparks uproar being the first bit of the title as so, and what's new. Um. Basically, and if this starts playing a forced advert, I will cry. Oh no, there we go. I hate forced advertising. It's so nineteen ninety nine, and the the independent seems to do it. So you just turn off your ad blockers. The forced ads come in, and they're always really loud videos as well. It's just offensive. Um, if you're listening, independent, I have said my piece. Um, government sparks uproar over plans to force broadcasters to make distinctively British TV shows. So talking about homogeneity and talking about fitting yourself into boxes and so on there, there was this piece and I, I don't know i don't quite know whether it was independent clickbait it mm. seems to have come from somewhere again i think it's a, it's a line taken out of probably slightly out of context now that out of government report but it's basically talking about how um the government our government the tory government want to or proposing that 
Public service broadcasters expand their remit. As part of this, there'll be a requirement they must produce distinctively British content with the speaker, citing only fools and horses, Fleabag, Derry Girl, and Doctor Who as examples. Okay. It's quite a nice list there. It is. I mean, someone else, someone else also um, suggested Carry On. That's <laughs> distinctively British. Wow. Away. Thank you. That's the the false advert. Frightened oh, yes, it's out of me. False advert. Lovely. Yes, um, I do apologise. So yeah, and they decided. So they decided to carry on, which is what I think I was. But I was just really interested in this idea of who gets to decide what distinctively British means. Yes. What? Who makes that box? Who puts the yes. six sides on that cube and says this is distinctively British? Is only fools and horses distinctively British? Maybe it's Fleabag. Maybe there's a British there's a British humour that un- underruns all of them, but at the same time, I'm looking at those lots. I, I don't know I don't know Derry Girls. And I can't what the other one is. I'm not opening it because of that forced advert. Um, but from my memory of, of certainly only, only Fools and Horses, it's not the most diverse show. No, Wait, when it, and look at when it was made. Point, you know, yeah. that was Britain in the what the seventies, seventies, eighties, nineties, and nor- and noughties, To be fair, oh, okay. I know it, it, it kept on coming. It kept on coming back. But you look at it and go, well, there's some amazing shows out there. So one of, one of my favorites, one of my personal favorites, is um, Goodness Gracious Me, mm. which is just it's a piece of nineties amazingness that stands up today, and it's brilliant. And it's about British Asian folk, yes. kind of. Creating and sending up British culture and sending up British Asian culture and shining lights into all sorts of kind of things in society and culture we need to know about. And I'm like, that's not on the list. And it might have been on someone else's list, but I'm like, who who makes this decision? Who tells us that this is what British culture is? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Who tells us this is this is British culture? What are their criteria? You know, and 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 who who has a say? In that criteria, because in theory, anything made by someone who is British, or anything made with the input of people who are British, could potentially be considered British-made or or whatever. The mm. it, it, oh no, I'm not even I'm not even explaining myself very well. I find the whole idea of of saying you know more British kind of content. Um, or whatever it was that was actually said, I find the whole idea kind of so just so upsetting. Actually, that it's, I th- do you know? I think that's what it is. I'm really upset. the The issue about who decides is is really bothersome, but also the issue about just putting a simple label on something that is not simple. And in fact, the beauty of it, the beauty of identity, is not in having a label or a uniform so that we all look the same. It is about the nuances. It's about how we differ and how we are the same and what the threads are that connect us through all of that, you know, multifaceted being real human beings. There, Absolutely. I got it out. I said that. You got this. it. You got it. Exactly. And yeah, and I think that's what worried me about it. And I, the story's been, it's gone. It never really went anywhere. I got a few people, including me, quite cross media. Dare I say media, probably media clickbait, and it all seems to have gone. But it did just make me think about that piece of who decides, who is around the table. We've spoken about kind of equality, diversity, and so on before, and I know it's, it's something very close to both of our hearts. But it is that that question of not only who decides and who is around the table, but who decides who is around the table. And you can, I mean, yes. you can, God, you can. It's like mirrors this up you put two mirrors next to each other you get an infinite thing you can go infinitely back but just that idea of we must make this and it would be a showcase of a particular country in a particular time what is british today is not british probably for my parent my parents mm. growing up it'd be very different the british of their youth would not be their parents and their parents yeah. beyond that would be born in the sometime in the mid 1800s i think um maybe mental maths is not my strong point but yes yeah, so mid late 1800s and so again all the society changes and if you ossify as soon as you label it i think you ossify it i think you mm. stick it in something and it prevents the potential for change 
a bit like I think with sort of first work-based topics we've talked about. As soon as you almost as soon as you label something, as soon as you give something a this is that, do you just limit it? Do you just turn around and go, yeah, this is this is what you wear in the office. This is office attire. This is that, and then you don't get fabulous orange jumpers. Yeah, exactly. And who wouldn't want a fabulous orange jumper? There's no better colour for jumpers, quite frankly. I do know you're a fan of orange. Oh, it is it is the finest of all the colours, in my in my pretty opinion. I I am I'm warming to it. I was worried, sceptical, scared of it for quite a number of years. In the last few years, I've I've learned to embrace it. And today, I'm wearing mm. an orange skirt, orange tights, and an orange jumper. I'll have you know. Blimey, you've gone all out. Lots of orange today, yeah. On that, on that bombshell. <laughs> on that, on, on that wardrobe bombshell. It's probably about, probably about that time to, to wrap up. Yes, I think you're right. I had a thought. It's been an absolute honour and a privilege. Thank you. It's been... so we've explored again all sorts of little. I was about to say little cul-de-sacs. That's wrong. Little eddies and little rivulets and things. Yeah, where are the interesting stuff? We've explored where the interesting stuff is. In, well, indeed. Just, just scratch the surface, I think. You've given me plenty to think about and go away and read and look at. But thank you. And thank oh, you for starting with such a lovely poem as well. Ah, uh, it was completely my pleasure. I was surprised by how much I felt it again, uh, that poem. And and also, um, I I think better, more in. I have more interesting thoughts um, in the presence of your attention and your thinking and the, our friendship and and the fact that we can be open with each other, I it's it's such a joy. Oh, thank you. I wish I wish more people have that that privilege that I think we both we both have. It's a privilege to have these conversations. And actually, I, I still have that poem open on my on my screen. And there's probably a, and I think there's a, a dual line which was was never intended by the author. But if I may if I may read, it seems particularly apposite at this exact moment. It comes from towards the end of the poem, and it says, "But we did not ourselves know what the end was. People, people like us, simply go on." And with that note, it's probably time to say goodbye, and know when it's time not to go on. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> but well, until the next time. Until the next time. All right. It's been a pleasure. Okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye.